Good morning, good morning. Great to be with you all. For those who I might not know or might not know me, my name's Kyle. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel, and it is great to be with you. Uh, I'm just super thankful uh, to our worship team for picking those songs this morning. I think, as Brent said, they sort of bring us to a place of of reflecting on what we need to focus on uh, today. And I think today's message uh, is a timely one, because I don't know about you, but I find myself a lot more, more recently, over the last number of months, over the last couple of years, asking God for signs. Do you ever find yourself wishing God would just give you a sign to tell you something? Maybe you just want a sign that God is listening. Maybe you have a big decision to make and you want a, a God to give you some type of sign to know which way you should go. Maybe you're feeling all alone and just want to know that he, he's present and with you. I know there's been a lot of times where I've just wished God would show himself with a big move somehow. I, I don't know exactly how, but like, God, just show your, your power, show you're in control. Like, God, just just give us something. Come on. You know, I, I think a lot of us are, are wrestling with that. And, and this passage today speaks to that. It speaks to our questioning of God for a sign. And we can ask God for signs out of all sorts of motivations. Sometimes they are those uh, sort of drives within us that ask, call us to ask for a sign because we just, we feel discouraged. Maybe we feel beat up and we just want a, a little bit of encouragement and uplift. Sometimes we can come with, with a desire to sort of challenge God and we feel frustrated by what's going on. And so we kind of want to prod him, poke him a little, maybe see if he'll kind of rise up. And then there's others who, who come and, and they just want to actually full-on challenge the, the idea or the, the concept that God is there and he's in control. You'll hear it from people who will say things like, if God would just do this, then I would believe. If God would heal my cancer, I would know he's really real. If God would save my broken marriage, we'd start going to church or we'd go back to church. If God could make a million dollars appear on this table, I would do whatever he asked or wished, right? We, we come with different motivations. And this isn't just a motivation or a set of questions that comes from people who are of Christian orientation. This is a universal sort of set of questions. People through all different places and spaces and periods of time have asked questions of, of God or wondered if if there was a cosmic power that be, and people have said, please show yourself to me. And sometimes that comes from a genuine place, and sometimes it comes from a little bit of a different place. Sometimes we actually ask for a sign because we want to be convinced of our unbelief. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Today we're going to be opening up to a passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 45, if you've got your Bibles. And we're going to be looking at this time where the religious rulers of the day had an encounter with Jesus in which they asked him for a sign. And they were asking for a sign for one of these perhaps less than genuine reasons. They were asking for a sign because they wanted a reason 
to not believe in him, and better yet in their mind, they wanted to ask him for something he couldn't provide because they hoped to discredit him. And as we look at this encounter between Jesus and these Pharisees and scribes, these religious rulers of the day, we're going to see that Jesus responds to people who ask him for signs. And he's going to tell us what those signs are for, where they should lead us, and what the consequence is if we don't respond in appropriate way. So join me if you got your Bibles in Matthew chapter 12, 38 to 45. Otherwise, of course, feel free to read along on the screens. We read this. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. They will, for they have repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through an arid place seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put into order. So then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of the person is worse than at first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. So this is uh, quite a, a heavy passage. It's a passage that is embroiled in all sorts of Jewish culture and ancient things that maybe we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. So as we go through this, I hope to bring some of that into you. But at the end of that, my, my hope really is for us to come to a, a place where we have a, a renewed heart in how we chat with God and how we view uh, ourselves and him in the situations where we find ourselves asking him for a sign. So let's begin with, with, with this idea of a sign. Like, what are the Pharisees really asking for from Jesus? If you've been following along with us, or if you've ever read the Gospels before, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, these accounts of Jesus' life, you'll read that all over the place as Jesus travels, he heals different people, he performs miraculous signs, and, and people see all sorts of things. And in fact, right before this, Jesus has just healed a whole bunch of people. There's been some amazing things that couldn't be explained any other way. And yet, the Pharisees still come to Jesus and say, hey, could you prove to us you're really God? <laughs> like, show yourself. If you're really in control, if you've really got all the power, Jesus, we want you to make it known. But really, what, what more could they be asking for? Like, Jesus has just done all these things. Really, what, what more do you want? Well, if we understand the, the Jewish identity, we can come to understand that they've had a challenge through the generations of different people coming and being able to do great things in God's names, but very few have actually been able to live up to what they're looking for. 
that God himself would come back to earth and, and lead them. And so when they ask for a sign, they're not just saying, hey, Jesus, do something pretty exceptional. They're saying, hey, Jesus, we want you to do something that only God can do. Give us what one writer calls a heavenly sign. And we understand by looking at the Jewish tradition that all of their form, forming of identity and all of how they understand God's power actually goes back to the book of Exodus. When you understand how the Israelites came to really know and worship God in a fresh way and to really understand that he was in control, it was when they came out of slavery from Egypt. For God to bring the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt and take them and transplant them to the promised land, he had to accomplish all sorts of incredible signs. We see that first he brings these different plagues, the ten plagues, which come and end up sort of wreaking havoc on the nation of Egypt while leaving the Israelite people healthy and safe. Then from there, we see that as they go out in towards the promised land, they run into a problem, that they run into a sea, which God then parts. And somehow, miraculously, they walk across the land, and then the water closes up and wipes out the Egyptian army. Now they're stuck. They're out wandering in the promise or in the wilderness, looking for this promised land, and they have no idea where God is or where they're going. And that is until he brings a pillar of fire and a cloud which goes with them through day and night and leads them and holds God's presence amongst his people. The people of Israel, when they're looking for God, want something spectacular. They want something that defies what some parlor magician could accomplish. They want something that goes beyond what someone who just has a little bit of extra gifting from God can do. They want to see a spectacle which only God can accomplish. And so the Pharisees say, hey, you've been healing people, but we also have people who have been healing people. We see that Jesus in the passages before this has actually just had an encounter where the Pharisees say, hey, you are casting out demons. And Jesus says, yeah, and you guys cast out demons. So, so a lot of these things that Jesus has done, God has also empowered other people in the Jewish nation to do. And so they say, all right, this is how we're going to prove that Jesus isn't really God, that Jesus isn't really the king. We're going to ask him to do something he cannot do. So Jesus Give us a sign. Well, Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their heart. He's been having all these interactions with these guys. He is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so he responds in a way that addresses them and their question, but also challenges and condemns them all at the same time. In verse 39 and 40, we read this. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now notice right away, Jesus doesn't respond to their demands. He doesn't go, okay, let me prove it to you. Ta-da, here's that pillar of fire again. 
He doesn't go, let me prove it to you. Ta-da, here's the plagues that are going to go wipe out all the firstborn of all your enemies. He doesn't do anything like that. He's not interested in playing games. He's not interested in capitulating to the, the wants and desires of the Pharisees. But he does tell them that there is something to come. Jesus says, you know what? I'm not going to perform for you here, but I do want you to be aware of what I'm doing. He said, coming very soon is going to be a sign. And the sign's going to be this. It's going to be that I will do something very similar to what your prophet Jonah experienced. Now, if we know uh, the story of Jonah and the big fish, or if you were a kid growing up in the church, Jonah and the whale, and you have that nice image in your mind of a guy who's sent by God to go to a foreign nation to tell them that they need to come and turn to God, and then he runs the other way and he gets swallowed by a fish. And in that fish he lives for three days. Somehow, supernaturally, God keeps him until the point of time where Jonah reconciles with God, the fish vomits Jonah up on the seashore, and Jonah goes to the people of Nineveh, and he ends up telling them all about God, and they turn and respond positively towards God. Well, what's incredible for the Jewish people is that the book of Jonah is more than just a children's story. This is actually one of the pinnacles of how they understand God. This week, as I was trying to understand this passage, I I thought I would spend some time reading up on sort of some modern Jewish literature about what what does Jonah mean? Because Jesus, if he's making an illustration that I'm going to be like Jonah, is probably saying something pretty powerful. Jesus doesn't sort of use flippant stories and illustrations. Jesus uses things that connect with the heart of people. So why was he connecting to the heart of people? What was he saying by talking about Jonah? Well, a rabbi uh, wrote this recently. He said, the story of Jonah is about not just prophecy. It's about the pinnacle of the love of God and the highest spiritual achievement a human can make. When the Jewish people were to think about Jonah, they were thinking about the most extreme example of what God's love can look like that he would take someone so rebellious against him and spare their life and use them, that he would take a people who were so vile and wicked and gross and save them despite themselves. For the Jewish situation, this is the pinnacle of God's love. But it's also the highest spiritual achievement a human can make. And what they mean by that is when someone hears from God and sees the truth about what he can provide and how he might love people, it is the onus on the people to dedicate with absolute commitment their whole life to God. This is how the Jewish people understand it. When you see what God has done through Jonah, you should commit the rest of your life to worshiping God. Even though you've never experienced it, even though that wasn't your situation, it was long, long ago, we should be able to look back because God has already shown us his great love. 
So when Jesus ties in a parallel for what he's going to do with what he has done through Jonah, he's saying, pay attention. You're looking for a sign, and this sign is going to come. And it's going to mirror what happened with Jonah, and it's going to be the best example. What you think was the pinnacle is going to pale in comparison to what I'm going to do. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried. Jonah lived in the belly of a whale for three days. I'm going to live in the earth dead for three days. And then I'm going to rise again. And that's going to be the sign that I am God, that I'm in control, and that you need to commit your life to following me. Now at this moment, I want to just stop there. Because this is actually a Bible passage where people have tried to pick apart and tear up the validity of Jesus' statements. And they do it with this, by questioning the timeline. For just a moment, let's consider the timeline of what Jesus says. He says, Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, three nights. All the Jewish people know this. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to die and I am going to be gone for three days. Then I'll rise again. But if you look at the historical account of what happens with Jesus, it doesn't seem to line up, at least to our Western understanding of time. We look at time and we go, okay, Jesus died on a Friday, was buried on a Saturday, was resurrected on Sunday morning. He's dead for what, 36 hours? <laughs> Maybe a little bit more? How does that line up with what he's saying here? Jesus clearly didn't live up to what he said he did. The problem with that, though, and what a lot of scholars or anti-Christian scholars will try to critique here is the fact that because the timeline exists, it clearly couldn't be. But that's only with our modern understanding of time. We have a very different understanding of how the world works than the Jewish people in the first century. In our time, a day is 24 hours, and that's the only way you can count a day, and so three days is 72 hours. But the ancient Jewish people actually looked at the calendar a different way. They said every day and night is one day. But any part of that day or night also counts as a day. And so what they said is you got, he he's died on a Friday. He was dead all day Saturday. And he was dead part of Sunday before he rose again. In rabbinical tradition, the tradition of the rabbis and the way they taught and understood time and how the world works, Jesus was dead for three days. This is really important because we can't apply our own set of beliefs and view of the world to what we understand in Scripture. When Jesus is talking here, he will come and fulfill what he is going to accomplish. And he's going to fulfill it in the greatest sense that the people could possibly understand. When he said, I'm like Jonah, he wasn't saying, I'm actually like Jonah. This is going to be an exact parallel. This is an imperfect illustration because Jesus is actually going to do better. We have to understand all these things because it helps us to understand what comes next. And that's the fact that there's going to be right responses and wrong responses to what Jesus is going to do. And this really is going to ruffle some feathers for the Israelite people. This is going to get under the skin of the Pharisees. 
In verse 41 and 42, Jesus says this, The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something than greater than Solomon is here. Jesus said, you've had three opportunities. People around the world have seen three opportunities to marvel at who God is. We can start with Jonah. We've seen what Jonah has done. It's been incredible. They saw the people of Israel look back and Jonah look back at his life and they saw what God has done and they changed their life around it. But it wasn't just the religious people who did that. It was also the worst of the people. In the story of Jonah, we also have the Ninevites, this Assyrian culture who is opposing God's kingdom. They're seeking to maybe come invade the nation of Israel, taking all of its money. They're subjugating them to having to pay tributes regularly. They're oppressing them. They're stealing their smartest people. They're killing anybody who they don't like from the Jewish culture. And those people weren't even Jonah. Jonah got the experience of having God do something miraculous, which led him to change his life towards God. The Ninevites just heard about it, and they changed their lives around. Then we have this other illustration, which is the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of Sheba is the queen, a queen who lived about the same time as King, or lived at the same time as King Solomon. She lived over 2,500 kilometers away. This isn't in a day when you can take jets and fly somewhere. There's no fast trains, no fast cars. But this woman comes to this point where she hears that there's some guy who's a king who's been granted by God wisdom. The greatest wisdom that ever has existed. And she says, I have to see this for myself. And so she travels over 2,500 kilometers to come to Israel to meet Solomon. She says, I'm this queen. You're this king, but you're supposed to be greater than me. And as she speaks with Solomon, she becomes convinced. God is incredible. He's done something in this guy's life that goes beyond anything I can possibly understand. And so she begins to worship God and pay tribute towards Solomon as God's good king. All of this is to say, as Jesus weaves all of these illustrations together, as he says, those who hear of what I have done and receive will be seen as people who are welcome into God's kingdom. They will be acknowledged by people as who has got it right in understanding. But everyone, even if they've experienced what God is doing, if they reject him, will experience condemnation. It says the Ninevites are going to condemn you. The story of the Queen of Sheba is going to condemn you because you are seeing what I have done and you are ignoring it. And so you are a wicked and an adulterous generation. And he says that has consequences. This is actually one of the heavier teachings of Jesus. Jesus doesn't end this on a a really upbeat, positive note. He ends it on a very specific note of truth. He says, if you hear about me, if you see what I have done, if you're going to eventually see what I'm going to do the cro- on the cross and you ignore me, there will be consequence. And he says it like this in verse 43 to 45. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. 
When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of the person is worse than at first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now this verse stands a little bit out on its own unless we connect it to what we were reading about last week in verses 22 to 37. In those verses, what Jesus said earlier as he's dealing with these Pharisees was this. I have come to empty out Satan's kingdom. I have actually come to take this guy and I'm going to tie him up and I'm going to plunder his house. Here he goes on to explain more about what that means. He says, I have come to clean up and tidy up what is a spiritual mess in people's lives. And there will be a point in which people people will have an opportunity to hear from me and to experience me. But if people don't turn in faith towards me, what's going to happen is that mess that I tidied up is going to come back even worse. And so he gives this picture of this evil spirit which exists in the world, the sin, the flesh, the brokenness. And he says, it's going to go out for a while while you see me, but if you don't respond in faith, it's coming back with seven more powerful beings. The reason Jesus speaks this way is because seven is this number of perfection in Jewish culture. He's saying, what's going to happen when you... when you reject putting your faith in me by what you've seen and known about me, is that all of that which is evil is going to come down and rain down on your life. And it is going to permanently inhabit with you. Jesus is trying to get the people to understand there is an extremely significant cost to rejecting who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. All the consequence of sin and evil will come flooding into your life and live with you for eternity. Jesus doesn't want to pull punches. He doesn't want anyone to have a reason to wonder, what if I don't? He says simply this, I have come to give you a sign that I am God, that I am in control, that I love you. And that sign is that I will go to the cross and I will die there taking on all of your evil and sin and I will take it with me to the grave and then I will rise again leaving that all behind so that if you would have faith in me, you would have a new life and be in my presence forever. The question of these Pharisees asking for a sign leads us to asking the question of how will we respond to the cross. These Pharisees didn't have the luxury that we have of being able to read the history of what Jesus accomplished. We get to live on this side of the cross and look back on all of what God has done just as like those Israelites did as they look back on what God did through Jonah. But we have it even better. Jesus says, if you have yet to come to me, come to me so you can have life. Come to me so you can have presence. Leave all of your sin and brokenness at the cross and then come and live. 
Otherwise, experience it all as you pick it up and even more comes upon you. It's not a threat. It's just truth. And he wants us to respond in the positive. And so if you're coming into this place and you're looking at what is wrong with the world, what's wrong with your life, you have to recognize that there is evil and brokenness that comes into the world because there's an enemy of God and we live in brokenness. But the good news is that God has come to overcome that. And he extends to you his offer of love and forgiveness that if you would acknowledge what is wrong and allow him to clean it out of your life, Jesus says, if you put your faith and trust in me, I will grant you forgiveness and give you eternal life. But this goes far beyond that. It goes far beyond that for each and every single one of us today. I think this has more powerful meaning beyond just our salvation, but it has meaning for us in this very moment of life. If you're like myself, you've experienced the power of the cross and seen the transformation that it can bring to your life, but there's still that part of you that as you look out at the world and all the injustice and all the frustration and everything that's wrong, you still find yourself going, God, would you just give us a sign. Would you give us a sign you're in power? Would you give us a sign that you have control? Would you give a, a sign that you haven't given up on us? To which Jesus says, renew your vision by looking at the cross. Renew your understanding of what life means and looks like all through the lens of looking at the cross. A little over a month ago, I was sitting in my living room reading a book, and I kind of just stopped reading the book because I needed to have a little pity party for myself. A little frustrated by what was going on in the world and in the church, and I was just feeling kind of down, and I just found myself being like, God, come on. Like, what's, what's going on? Like, why is this? It just seems like everything's running away from you. It feels like everything's just, like, coming off the rails. Like, this is just going to be a spectacular train wreck. God, what on earth? Where are you? Show up. And as I just poured out my heart to God in that sense, I felt that God reminded me of a verse. The Holy Spirit brought to me John chapter 16, verse 33. And in it, he says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome this world. If you're feeling frustrated right now and wondering where God is, the sign you need is what God accomplished on the cross. The most powerful thing in the universe outside of God is sin and death. And he's already defeated it. If you want to know if he's in control, if you want to know that he can accomplish what he has promised in his word and through his people, you can know by what he's already accomplished on the cross. This is a slow realization that I'm coming to within my own life, is that when I look at the problems of this world, the problem is never actually the problem. The problem is never God. The problem is me and my lack of faith in him. 
The problem is me not embracing the renewed vision that he offers for my heart and my life to allow it to transform my perspective and to allow me to be motivated to be used by the Holy Spirit so he can continue to renew the hearts of others as they see a continued story of the power of the cross in my life. There's been a pastor who's been a, a real encouragement and challenge for me. Of late, I've been and reading and listening to, to a pastor named Mark Sayers. He's this great, amazing pastor. He's this cultural analyst, and he's been looking at the world for the last 10 years, telling people about what the world was going to look like. He's been calling the experience that we're seeing right now in, in Canada and in North America and the whole of the West. He's been calling this for about 10 years, saying there's going to come a point where the people are going to look at the world and say this has gone too far. There's going to be a point where the church comes and is discouraged and begins to doubt whether the church will ever truly flourish. But he says this, that God promises that the church and the move of his spirit is like the tide. There will be times when it recedes out into the ocean because it needs to move back beyond the breakers so that there can be a renewal so that as the tide comes back in, it can bring more force and more change than we ever could have imagined. When we come to a place where we're demanding and trying to seek a sign from God, it might actually be a good thing. Because as Mark says, he says this, when you have nowhere else to turn, you realize you need renewal. When you and I find ourselves asking God for a sign, it's a sign that it's time for us to go back to the cross. It's time for us to sit with God and remember. One thing that's helpful for me in this, and I've done this many times over my life, is just try to write down every sin you've committed in a week. It's a lengthy list for me. <laughs> like a like pad of paper list, you know? And you go through that, and then you consider the fact that Jesus died and took all that with him on the cross. And then I multiply that by, by not just this week, but the, the 52 weeks, then the number of years that I've been alive, and then I multiply that by all of you and all of these people down through history who have been beneficiaries of the cross, and I stand amazed. There is a God with so much love. There is a God with so much power and control and he is not kidding when he says i have overcome the world he's not kidding when he says the gates of hell cannot prevail against my church if there is anything that you should leave with from this place today it's the good news of the cross and my prayer is that as we go this week that we would be renewed from the inside out each and every week, I try to take an intentional time where I, where I pray for our church through the lens of what we're studying in Scripture. Say, hey, God, this is what I'm hearing from you. This is what I'm hoping to, to transmit to your people. God, what, where do we need to go? And out of that, I begin to pray. 
And this was my prayer this week. I wrote it down, and I want to share it with you. My prayer was that we as the people of Emmanuel would become a people who are so in touch with what the cross means for us that it would change our disposition. That we would be a people who would embrace the fact that we have received the Holy Spirit's presence and power through our faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. And I pray that out of this renewed heart, that we would be a people who would be regularly engaged in practicing the presence of God, that we would know the God who has sacrificed himself for us through our spiritual disciplines, that we would be people who would have such a renewed vision that we would go out and be the church in the world, that we would not be naively optimistic, but that the cross would be our anchor holding us firm to the truth as we go forward, that when Jesus said that we could take heart because he has overcome the world, that we would believe it and that we would live by it. That we would be the people who would push back against the gates of hell instead of worrying about the gates of hell pushing back against us. My prayer for Emmanuel is that we would become a passionate people who would not stand by waiting for Jesus to give us another sign, but instead that we would go be the sign for other people because of the message of the cross. Let me pray that over you. Lord, the cross is such a a big thing to consider. It's such a a heavy thing to identify with, Lord, because I see how my sin held you there. I see how all of the, the sin of the world held you there, and God, that breaks my heart. But Lord God, it also encourages me. It encourages me because it reminds me of, of your power and your grace and your love for not just me, but for your, the world that you have created, for every person that, that you have formed in a, in a mother's womb since Adam and Eve. God, I thank you that you have demonstrated for us long before any one of us who's alive now needs a sign that you are in control and that you have the power and that you have a way forward and that you have opened a path for us to experience your forgiveness and your presence. And God, I thank you for the cross. But God, I pray that we would not just be a thankful people, but would we be a people so moved by what the cross has done for us, by what the cross means for us, that we would have a renewed vision for our church and for the world. Lord God, would you stir within each and every person's heart here today a strong sense, a strong conviction of what the cross doesn't just mean for their lives, but, but for the lives of those they care about, for the lives of the strangers on the street, for the lives of those people who are suffering around the world. Lord God, would we have a, a heart driven by the cross that would drive us deeper into knowing you and deeper into loving other people. Lord God, would we be a people who would have a renewed vision for what the world looks like? And Holy Spirit, out of that, would you just 
do such an incredible work in our lives, that you would expand your kingdom in them, that you would do such a great work in our community through us, that you would expand your kingdom, that you would do such a great work in the world, that you'd expand your kingdom. God, would we see more and more houses being tidied? And Lord God, would those lives that have have heard about you and seen you not be left empty for the enemy to have something to do with, but Lord God, would people come with such a great conviction because they see how you're working in the church and in your people and would their lives be filled with your presence for your glory's sake. Holy Spirit, I'm just so thankful that you are here with us, that you are with us every moment and every day and that we receive you when we put our faith in the cross. Holy Spirit, would we be a people who are changed by you, a people who are in tune to you? Would we hear your voice? Lord God, be with my church family this week as they seek to live this out, as they seek to expand your kingdom, as they seek to find you at the cross. Lord God, now as we return in worship, Holy Spirit, would you stir something up in us so we'd hear more from you, but would we also turn that outwards and praise you in the way that you deserve because you deserve all the glory, honor, and praise. We thank you so much for who you are and what you've accomplished, and we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.